Carol. Well, uh, Dr. Murphy is still uh, on vacation this week, so he plans to be back uh, next weekend, but it is my pleasure to introduce uh, another Dr. Brian, uh, Dr. Brian Biedebach, and he's no stranger to this pulpit. Uh, he has been here a number of times over the last few years, and uh, I know uh, many of us have been blessed by his uh, preaching. His wife, Anita, has joined him this morning as well, so make sure that you greet her. Uh, Dr. Biedebach has been uh, a uh, missionary in Africa for many years, and he's currently uh, serving as a professor at the Master's Seminary. So uh, it's my pleasure to welcome him up and share the word with us today. Thank you. What a joy to be here with you again and um, invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking uh, at verses 15 through 17 this morning. The title of this message is The Centrality of Preaching in the Local Church. The Centrality of Preaching in the Local Church. And I'm going to go ahead and read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 14 down through the end of the chapter, which says this. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, as you keep your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 3, I, I, I guess I'll begin by asking the question, why does preaching have such a dominant role in our church? Uh, why, why do we spend so much time and effort on Preaching. There are many who would like to diminish preaching today. There are some who have suggested that we should have a more balanced worship service where we have 20 minutes of singing and then 20 minutes of prayer and then 20 minutes of preaching. Uh, I, I suppose just to be equitable, you would need to have 20 minutes of giving as well. But I think, I think that when, when we think about that question, the answer comes in, in, in two parts, really. The, f- the first part of, of the answer is that God has ordained preaching to have a dominant role in the church. Um, a unique qualification for an elder, the leaders of the church, is that he must be able to teach. And there's a command in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And Romans ten fourteen cries out, how will they hear without a preacher. And so we, we know from Scripture there are numerous passages that speak about the importance of preaching. God has ordained preaching to have a dominant role of the church. But there's a second part of the answer here that really gets to the heart of our question and it, because it answers the question why. Um, second reason or part of the answer is to, to why preaching is so dominant in our churches because God has ordained the Word of God to be the primary means to sanctify His church. God has ordained the Word of God to be the primary means to sanctify His church. The word sanctify means to be set apart. I have clothes on today that are set apart for church. 
If I go home this afternoon and wander into the garage and start cleaning and putting some things away and handling greasy, you know, tools, uh, my wife might stick her head in the door and say, uh, no, 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 go change those clothes. Those are your church clothes. They are set apart for church. They are sanctified. In a similar way, we are set apart for the work of ministry. We are not to be mucking around in the filth of this world. We are sanctified people and we are being sanctified that is being set apart and being made more and more holy, more and more like Christ. Um, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the with the word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And to help us reinforce our appreciation for the word of God and strive after it, endeavoring to apply it more and more to our lives, I want to take a look at this passage with a little bit more depth than we normally would spend. Uh, but, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Now, I'm going to be focusing in on a certain aspect of this passage. Uh, that, that aspect is the sufficiency of Scripture. I could be talking about a number of issues relating to Scripture, because this passage is amazing as, the, as it refers to Scripture. Because it not only talks about the sufficiency of Scripture, but it talks about the, the inspiration of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture, and the clarity of Scripture. Just, just take a look at this, this just by introduction, just by way of introduction. Just, just, just a broad overview of this passage that will focus in on the sufficiency. But take a look at the inspiration. It, the passage begins in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. The fact that this book has been inspired by God means much more than it's merely motivated by God. It's, it's different than if someone says, well, I was inspired to write you a poem or I was inspired to sing this song. Uh, I was motivated. I was encouraged. This word here means God breathed. Now, God didn't dictate it, but God used the words of men but they are the very words of God. It is impossible that the Bible could be merely the words of men. Uh, here's a book written over 1,500 years uh, by men from different background, and yet uh, it's one story from beginning to end. It, it, it starts with uh, the halfway point is Genesis chapter 3, because the first two chapters describe a perfect relationship between God and man, and then sin enters the world. And the rest of the book, the rest of the story is how we might be reconciled to God, how we, we might be redeemed in the story of redemption through Christ. And so we have one story, and, and, and Paul was thankful to the Thessalonians, remember, when he said in First Thessalonians 2, verse 13, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the words of men, but as for what it really is, the word of God. So this is the inspired word of God, and it's referred to in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. But we also see the canonicity of scripture in this passage because we see that it says all scripture. When we talk about the canon, we're talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. 
How do we know that the canon is complete? How do, know, how do we know what all Scripture is? Well, a short answer for that would be that we know that the 39 books of the Old Testament are in the canon of Scripture because Jesus affirmed them as Scripture. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who lived and walked on this earth, he lived and he went as his custom, it says in Luke 4, uh, 4, verse 16. It was his custom to enter the synagogue and to read. And the synagogue used the Old Testament canon. The synagogue at that time recognized the 39 books and for decades and centuries had recognized those 39 books as Scripture. And so Jesus recognized, he uh, affirmed them as scripture but we also know the 27 books of the new testament are scripture because jesus authorized his apostles to write them or to be a part of the writing of them and so we know that he did this in john 14 verse 23 and following jesus told his apostles that the holy spirit would disclose many more things and guide them we see that also in john 16 verses 12 and following so we know that god's revealed message for us is scripture and we know that the scriptures are complete we've seen the inspiration of scripture and the canonicity of scripture but amazingly there's also the preservation of scripture for thousands of years this book has been preserved with extreme accuracy so that we know what is god's word we see paul writes in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, continuing the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And verse 15, he refers to these things as the sacred writings. These writings are sacred because ever since God's word was spoken to the world, he has remarkably preserved it. According to Matthew 5.18, every jot and tittle. That is to say that God has been so active in preserving his word that not even the tiniest or what some may seem to think the most insignificant stroke of a letter um, would change the meaning so that somehow this would not be accomplished. All that is prophesied in this book will come to pass. Everything in God's word will be fulfilled. And, and in God's wisdom... We don't have the original manuscripts. And, and I believe we can be thankful for that because if someone actually had the original manuscript of a certain book, they could alter it and say, you see, this is the first one, this is what it says, and it's different from what you think. But in God's wisdom, we have a multitude, a plethora of manuscripts, and through the process, a certain process, of historical, biblical criticism where, where we actually, or historical criticism, we actually go through uh, and, and look at the, uh, orig you can look at these copies and you can determine what the original ones actually said and you can be sure about it. Um, just to give an illustration, imagine that your Aunt Martha had a recipe for a chocolate cake that you really loved and everybody loved, everybody raved about her chocolate cake and everybody wondered, how does she make this cake? They all wanted it. She would never give it out to anybody. And one day her house burns down and she loses the recipe. And so you say, well, we're sad about your house, but we're really sad about the cake because uh, now we don't have this cake anymore. And she says, well, as it so happens, I did, I did give it to one friend. And so you go to Aunt Martha's very good friend and she says, it's a funny thing, my dog ate that recipe. So I no longer have that recipe either. 
but I gave it to two friends. And it turns out that those two friends had each given it to three friends. And so you gather all eight copies of them and you find out that they're amazingly similar. There are some slight differences. One of them says stir and mix and the others all say mix and stir. You can determine what the original one said. One of them actually adds almonds to the recipe. Or walnuts. Sorry, it must be walnut. walnuts. It's chocolate cake. But anyways, uh, I'm just, we're just talking here. But I'm just, I'm just saying that you get the idea. If you have accurate manuscripts and great consistency and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts, you can determine what the original one said with surety. We have the amazing preservation of Scripture. I could go on and on about this. We could talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We could talk about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. But I'll leave that for your pastor to do because... No, I'm, uh, uh, I, I, we got to move on. So, the preservation of Scripture. We also have the clarity of Scripture, though, in our passage. Take a look at verses, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verses 1 through 3, where Paul writes to young Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The clarity of Scripture implies that although admittedly some passages of Scripture are more difficult to understand and to interpret than others, every word in the Word of God was intended to be understood. It was written in a way not with some hidden secret code that you have no idea. It was written so that you might understand it and then apply it to your life. God himself said in Isaiah 45 verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. God has spoken plainly to us through his word. And therefore, as Martin Luther says, it is to be given chief place above everything. God's word must certainly have the first place and the last word in any theological discussion. It must have a central place in the church because it is the very word of God. And it's not just that we speak the word of God. You have to understand the word of God. If it were just speaking the word of God, I could read it to you in Latin like they did during the Dark Ages and you wouldn't even understand it. And somehow mystically we could think that reading it in Latin would somehow mystically help you spiritually. But you must understand the word of God, which is why it must be preached so that you can then apply it to your own life. Now, some might listen to this message and say, is a message on the sufficiency of Scripture even necessary? I mean, you know, why would... I mean, of course preaching is central. Why, why is a message like this even necessary? If, if God's Word is really the inspired Word of God, and if we all believe that the canon is complete, and if it has been preserved by God throughout the centuries, and we know that it's not hidden, but there, the message of it is clear, then why wouldn't every believer lift up the Word of God, exposing it to the whole world, and relying upon it for every spiritual need? 
And we know that at this church, that is exactly what this congregation endeavors to do. But surprisingly, though almost every church would give some sort of verbal of assent for their love and high view of God's word, many churches do not have a high view of God's word. They have a very low view of God's word. And you can hear it by the things that people say. I've, heard, I've, I've invited people to my church, and they hear a sermon, and they say to me afterwards, this is, these, this is what my friend told me. He says, yeah, another sermon from the Bible about the Bible. What's that supposed to mean? I mean, are you saying amen? You know? Or, or he says, you know... I think you might believe in a different trinity than I do. I said, really? What trinity do you believe in? He says, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I said, me too, because that's what the Bible teaches. You know, I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I, I endeavor to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, which means to be controlled by him to do what he would have me to do. And he says, yeah, I, I sort of think you believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. I say, I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I can't separate God's word from God. If I love God, I will love his word. Can you imagine if you told your wife, honey, I really love you. It's just, I don't ever want to hear from you. I just, it's, just, it's just your words that I don't like, but you I love. Just, just be there and be quiet. <clears throat> How is that going to go for you? You don't need to answer that. I, I don't know how I can separate every time. I mean, there are so many passages in God's Word about God's Word. The word word for God's Word is found more than a thousand times in His Word. And that doesn't even include other words that are synonyms for word, like precepts or statutes or teachings or commandments or testimonies or ordinances or the law or the writings. But we constantly, I mean, it's hard to think of a chapter where you don't find God's word talking about his word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a light unto my feet and a light unto my, sorry, a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. James 1.22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Matthew 7.24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. John 1.1, 1, 1, we heard it this morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, words with God, and the word was God. So what's surprising is that churches say they have a high view, but they they downplay the Word of God. You know, it used to be in the 1980s that churches would, uh, you know, you, you find a Baptist church in the south and it has a big basement and somebody says, hey, I got an idea. Let's build a bowling alley in the basement so that people can use the church for bowling during the week and we can invite our unchristian friends here and it will give us a platform to slip in the gospel. Or they say, uh, let's have a big Broadway production or, uh, you know, uh, some, some kind of big, big production. We'll get real animals in the church. That's a good idea. And, then, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put on a, such a production that the world has never seen. We'll out Hollywood Hollywood. And, uh, and then people will come 
to our church and we can slip in the gospel. The, the problem, there's a couple of problems with that. One of them is that if you use worldly techniques to get people in the church, you're going to end up with a worldly church. But a second one is there's an underlying presupposition, and that is that somehow the word of God is not powerful enough to draw people to Christ. That we need something else. Now, I've got nothing against bowling, and Hollywood can do what it wants. But, I, but I, 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 I'm just saying if we're, if we're thinking we need something else to get people to come to church besides God's word, we're thinking a low view of God's word. Another way people really demonstrate a low view of God's word is they add to it. Uh, the charismatic movement has become very good at this and, and so good that they've influenced many people who are not even charismatics to say things that really we know are not true. They say things like, the Lord told me. Or I've had a word from the Lord. Or I've been anointed with a prophetic utterance. Or God's given me this new revelation. When you hear that and you ask them, say, really? So are you telling me that the words that you think he told you are on the same level with Scripture? Most people say, no, 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 not, not, not the same level as Scripture. You know, there's, so, so your words are not infallible, perfect? Well, I, I think they are, but I might have made a mistake. There's human error. Well, wait a minute. You said God told this to you? How can God's word not be trusted? How can God's word not be authoritative? How can God's word, if it really is coming again, how could it be on the same level of Scripture? And when it doesn't come true, how can you still say it's God's word? I don't understand that. It's confusing to me, and it's confusing that the church seems to accept this claim when very clearly they don't have an answer for false prophecy and they will not really admit that it's authoritative as Scripture. Either it's God's word or it's not God's word. It's kind of like saying I'm kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You, you can't just say it's kind of God's word. In fact, in Revelation twenty-two nineteen, there's a warning which says anybody who adds to the words of this book will have the curses of the book put upon them by God. So why would you want to add to something that says it's done? It's clear that people have a low view of God's word and somehow they think it's more spiritual to try and add to it or to try and use something else instead of it to draw people to Christ. Now before we get too upset about other people, I just want to say this, that it's important to remember that we ourselves often downplay the importance of the word of God. You can say you love the word of God and you can mean it. You can sing, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. But if there are days or even weeks where you're not really hungering for the word of God, that's why we, too, need to be reminded of its sufficiency. Because we live in a world that is designed, it's on a course to pull us away from loving God. 
and loving his word. So we need to be reminded of this. And this morning, as we look at verses 15 through 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to find three reasons why the preaching of the word should be a central part of our worship in the church. Three reasons why the preaching of the word should be a central part. And the first one is this. The scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. The scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. Take a look again at verse 14 and 15 of 2 Timothy 3. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Middle of verse 15, Paul mentions the word, the words sacred writings. He's referring to God's inspired word. The word of God is the only source of wisdom that can save you from the wrath of God. Why would you want to use anything else to try and save someone? When it comes to salvation, we don't need any other tool to teach us about ourselves and about who God is and how we can be saved than the Word of God. I know that I'm a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn with me to Ephesians 2 quickly. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and and go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want to point out some passages from Ephesians that just demonstrate how the scriptures are able to save you. The scriptures are able to save you. In Ephesians 2, we learn that prior to salvation, we follow the course of this world. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Uh, the course which is influenced by Satan and his demons. The course which is followed by a world of rebels that love their own sin rather than turn in obedience to God. And, and that, that was me. And that was you. Or it may still be you. We are born rebels against God. Someone said you can shake your fist at God, but he will determine exactly how many times you shake it. But that's our heart. We want to sin. And we want to cherish our sin. And so we are rebels against God. We're born that way. I, don't, I didn't have to teach my kids how to sin. They're like a fish to water. They're really good at it. They're, they're adept at it. It's, it's like, you know, kid comes to me and lies. No, I didn't eat any Martha's chocolate cake. Okay, now listen, next time you lie, you should probably wipe the crumbs off of your, your cheeks and it'll be much more believable. I don't have to teach them that because they, they get that. They know that. They mature on their own. Because they have a sin nature. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among them, that's speaking of the sons of disobedience, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I love it that Paul says, we too. Those pronouns, we are significant because earlier in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, he says, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he's speaking to the Ephesians, the Ephesians who were pagans, who had a temple in their city that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that overlooked their city to Artemis, a love god. 
There was all kinds of immorality that they had been involved in. And he would say, you lived in the lust of your flesh. No, he says, we, Paul, Paul who followed the true way. He followed Yahweh. And he was a member of the nation of Israel. According to, to uh, what Paul wrote about himself, he, he talked about the fact that uh, he was, according to legal righteousness, he was blameless in Philippians 3.6. And yet in chapter 2, verse 3, says, we lived in the lusts of our flesh. Which is significant because you could grow up in a home where they use vulgar language and curse God every day and know that you are following the lust of your flesh. But you can also grow up in a Christian home, going to Sunday school and memorizing Scripture. And if you have not yet repented of your sins and turned and trusted Him as your Lord and Master, you're following the lusts of your flesh. Paul was considered by others to be blameless and righteous, yet he was following the lusts of his flesh. In both cases, you need to repent. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned, therefore he never had to die, but Christ allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute, as a sacrifice for you, so that if you are to repent of your sins and turn and trust in him as your Lord and Master, you will be cleansed, you'll be washed, You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be made new. You'll be adopted into God's family as a child. And when God sees you, he will not see your sin. He will see Christ's righteousness, which has been taken out of his account and placed into your account, and your sin taken out of your account and placed into Christ's account where he pays for it in full on the cross. Even in Ezekiel, God had written the soul of him who sins will die. And in Ezekiel 18.32, we see that God wanted repentance, though. He said, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Everyone who denies that salvation is from God by grace is actually trying to work their way to heaven, be good enough, smart enough, somehow do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Impossible. Impossible. And those who do not repent are according to Ephesians 2 verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 of Ephesians 2. They are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in this world. Those who don't repent and follow Christ as Lord and Master, believing on His work for salvation and and trusting in the fact that He was the first fruits of many resurrections to come and that you have eternal life in Him and Him alone, those who have no hope in this world, they are blinded, they are deceived. But those who do repent, according to Ephesians 2, verse 17, 
It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access into one spirit, access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Verse 20 of Ephesians 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Flip over to Ephesians 5. I just want to show you something just, just really sweet. We could, we could we go more and, t- and demonstrate more from Ephesians about how the scriptures are sufficient to save. But I want to show you something in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. I read it earlier, but let's read it again. Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that, <coughs> significant here, we have a purpose clause. We have the reason why Christ sacrificed himself for the church. Why would he do that? And then we have a so that. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Think about the first century wedding ceremony. In the first century wedding ceremony, you had three phases. The first phase was the fathers would get together and they would arrange the wedding. They would say, yeah, this seems like a good match. Let's do this. They'd talk about all the details and the wedding would be arranged. The second uh, segment or step in the wedding process would happen later. It would be a betrothal. Now, the betrothal was legally binding. Once you were betrothed, you were married. If he died, she was a widow. If they wanted to break it off after you're betrothed, uh, they needed a certificate of divorce. Um, uh, the, the husband... Uh, the groom would actually say in the betrothal, the betrothal would be a small ceremony with a rabbi and with the family around. And the groom would actually say, you are a wife unto me. And then it would be several months later where they would have a celebration and then the consum- consummation of the, the marriage. And so, so we would have the, the celebration would be the third phase of that wedding. And on that day, it began with the bridesmaids coming over to the bride's home and either taking her to the local bathhouse or if she had a bath in her home, maybe down in the basement, hewn out rock with water, they would give her a ceremonial bridal bath. Today we have bridal showers, then they have bridal baths. And and they they would bathe her and then adorn her and perfume her in glorious clothes so that she would look and smell splendorous. And then they would wait, which is also good preparation for marriage. They would wait for the groom to come and procure her from her father's house. This is what's happening in Matthew 25 with the ten virgins who are waiting with their lamps and they don't have enough oil. They're, they're waiting for the groom, the bridegroom, to come procure the bride. And he would come to her home, sometimes at night, and parade her through the village to his father's house and present her to the father who had made the arrangement of the marriage in all her splendor, in all her glory, in all her radiance. That was the first century wedding. Now read this passage again. Look at Ephesians 5, 
25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is the greatest love story ever told. Paul is talking about marriage and he's encouraging husbands to be sacrificial in the way that they love their wives. And yet the thought of a sacrificial husband brings him to the thought of Christ who takes the church which he was not attracted to to begin with because they were rebellious against him and yet he died for the church so that he might cleanse the church and sanctify the church through his word no, no wonder angels according to 1 Peter 1 look upon the church with awe no, no wonder that, that angels long to look at these things. Because as far as we know, angels have no way of being redeemed once they are fallen angels. But somehow fallen sinful human beings have a way of redemption, not only so that they may be in God's presence, but so that they may be the bride of Christ, fully adorned in glory and splendor, righteous. This is a great story. This is good news. And it is the word of God that is able to do that. No wonder Paul encouraged Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, 2 Timothy 3.15, we can turn back there, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's the Word of God which is able to save. A second reason why preaching should be central is not only are the Scriptures able to save, but the Scriptures are sufficient to mature the believer. They're sufficient to mature the believer. They can save the lost, and they can mature the believer. Verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I want you to notice four ways that the Scripture matures believers. Through teaching, through reproof, through correction, and through training in righteousness. The first word that tells us how Scripture is profitable is through teaching. Now, the word teaching in this verse is a noun. It's a noun. And in this context, it doesn't refer to the practice of teaching others. It refers to biblical instruction. It refers even to biblical doctrine. In fact, the same word teaching is found in second, that's found in 2 Timothy 3.16 is often translated as doctrine. And we find it just four, a few verses away in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 where it says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Same word there, teaching doctrine. Doctrine is teaching, and sound doctrine only comes from the Word of God. I, I can't, I, I, it doesn't compute when people say, well, let's not talk about doctrine. What, what do you mean? Not talk about God's Word? How could we not talk about God's Word? For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires in in academia i i i live in a very academic world and there's a pressure uh among 
professors and pastors to be seen as important. There's a temptation for pastors and professors and those who preach and teach God's word to be seen and have the spotlight on them instead of God's word. I'm just being honest. There's a temptation out there. And uh, it used to be that only the liberals got away with it. Because, I mean, if you, if you don't believe that the Bible's really God's word or it's not inerrant, that you, you can be innovative. You can say, I found something that nobody has ever found before in the God, God's word. Listen, if you hear somebody say, nobody's ever found this before I came along, buckle up. This is not going to go well. This is red flags all over the place. Um, but uh, so, 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 and I think those who, who say things like that or, or start to draw attention to themselves rather than bring you to the word of God, they forget the fact that you cannot plumb the depth of God's word. As Paul cried out in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Which is why Paul was amazed in Ephesians 3, verses 8 and 9, when he preached, he said he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ, the boundless riches. Charles Spurgeon often challenged people about the kind of preaching they sat under. Spurgeon said this, May I beg you carefully not to judge every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his elocutionary powers, not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this. Does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? If he does, your sitting under his ministry may prove to be the means of beginning faith in you, but if he does not, you cannot expect God's blessing. The scriptures can bring you to maturity because there's teaching. You say, well, what about other means? I mean, doesn't God use suffering or fellowship or ordinances or, or prayer? Can't he use that to sanctify me? Yes, but those will only benefit you if you practice them with a proper understanding of the teaching of Scripture. So it all comes back to the Scripture. The second way that Scripture matures believers is not only through teaching, but through reproof. Through reproof. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof. The word here, reproof, means rebuke. It means rebuke. This is the only time this word, this particular word, is actually used in the New Testament. It is a strong word. Uh, it's used in the Old Testament, in, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it carries the idea of exposing, bringing to light, conviction, reprimand, even discipline. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Scripture confronts us. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Luther again said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. <clears throat> this may be one of the reasons why people try to avoid the Bible. 
There's a story of an African queen who uh, her, her chief uh, one day left the tribe and went to, to the city and came back with something that nobody in the village had ever seen before. It was a piece of glass that was very reflective. It was a mirror. Nobody had ever seen a mirror before. So people are fascinated about it. Everybody wanted to see it. Oh, look at this. Oh, that's me. Oh, wow. You know? And so they, they hung it on a tree in the village. And she hated it. Because every time she looked at it, she became, she, she acquired the knowledge that she was not beautiful. And there was much about her that was to be desired. And there were many others that were much more beautiful than her. And that her hair was a mess and that she, she did not look beautiful. So she hated the mirror. And it started to get to her and get to her. And while other people were enamored with it, finally one day she thought of a solution. I know what I'm going to do. And she walked over to the mirror and she grabbed the mirror and she shattered it on the ground into a thousand pieces. That's what people want to do to the Word of God. I don't want to read the Word of God because I don't want to see my own sin So I'm going to destroy the word of God, get rid of the word of God so that I can't see my sin and nobody can see my sin. The word of God reproves. It confronts. But those who understand the grace of God want to be confronted by the word. We want areas in our lives that need to be changed to be pointed out, not so that we can ignore them longer but so that we could change this is why proverbs ten seventeen says he is on the path of life who heeds instruction but he who ignores reproof goes astray proverbs 3 11 and 12 my son do not reject the discipline of the lord or loathe his reproof for whom the father loves he reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights Listen to Psalm 19, verses 8 through 12. It says this. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of my hidden faults. When John Calvin commented on this verse, Psalm 119, verses 8 through 12, in this passage in his commentary, he said this, There is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. How frightening is that? The hundredth part, one percent, of your sin is all you know. Everything else is like below the surface of the, of the water. The iceberg just shows the top 1%. And underneath, you don't even see all the sin in your life. You, someone, I was talking to someone recently. I was talking to someone and I said, your only hope is to repent and follow Christ. And he goes, I know that. I'm just not ready to do that. And I thought about it. And I, I didn't say it to them this time, but I may have an opportunity in the future, and I, you can, I'm going to say this. You know why that is? You know why you're not ready to, resent, to repent? You have no idea how much sin is in your life and how offensive it is to the Holy God. If you had any inkling how offended He is by your sin and how much you deserve His wrath, 
you would fall to your knees today and repent. The scripture reproves, but not only reproves, it teaches, reproves, and it corrects. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The word correction, the word correct there has, has the word ortho in there. We get the word orthodontist from it. Literally means to make straight. Orthodontist makes teeth straight. Orthopedic surgeon makes bones straight. The word of God not only points out areas in your life that are crooked, but it is able to straighten them out again. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't doesn't leave you in your ugliness. It shows you how to deal with sin. That's why 1 Peter 2, 1-2 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I think sometimes we as Christians get saved, enjoy a, a sweetness, and then there's sin that you recognize in your life. And we almost get discouraged, and, and I think sometimes people do get discouraged to the point where they think, I have a hidden sin in my life that I'm not really going to be able to get rid of. I don't think I'll, in this lifetime I'll ever overcome that sin. And it's really, it's a wrong understanding of God. It's a low view of God's word because God's word can correct it. It says in Romans 6 that sin shall not have dominion over you, which means that though we will struggle with sin all the rest of our life and battle against it, we will grow. You can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue to perfect you into the day of Jesus Christ. And so you will grow. And whereas prior to coming to faith in Christ, there were life-dominating sins that characterized you, according to 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. Now, there is no life-dominating sin that you cannot overcome. And in, until you understand that and believe it, you will never over, uh, overcome it. But you can overcome it. And the way to overcome it is to immerse yourself to long for the pure milk of the word. You can be free from any particular sin. Because sin shall not have dominion over you. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you'll be perfect. Because we struggle against sin. But sin should not be what characterizes you if you are in Christ. And if you need to be free of a particular sin, talk to somebody who's more mature than you. Have them take you to Scripture. Long for it so that you might be free. Because the Scriptures make you mature there's a progression here. I want to take a look at the fourth way that they mature you. They, they teach you, which gives you the right understanding. They, they, they reprove you, which shows you exactly where you need to change. They correct you because they're able to straighten out those crooked areas that need change. But notice the progression. They can train you in righteousness. It takes you beyond correction. It takes you to a point where now you are so mature you're able to be be. be to a level of righteousness that you're able to do the work of ministry. 
like a coach who's going to train the best athlete and bring them further than they ever have been before, like a tutor who's able to take you to excel. The Word of God takes people who are sick with sin and not, as able to, not only able to heal them and make them whole, but to train them in righteousness. This often happens slowly over time. Sometimes we give up on it because we're frustrated with how long it's taking. But it happens. I know that when we lived in Africa, every few years we'd come back and visit. And we'd usually see my sister about every three years. And it was the same story every time. She'd see my kids and she'd say, I can't believe how much they've grown. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, it's no surprise to me. I feed them, right? I see them, you know, but I don't notice the growth because it happens slowly. And uh, for her, she hasn't seen them in years, so she notices things. Sometimes you're sitting in a good church under faithful teaching. You can be confident that you're growing, even though if you don't notice it, even though if it doesn't happen to the time that you think it should happen. But when you run into somebody that you knew from a long time ago, they might notice, hey, you're handling this differently than you would have back when I knew you. There's growth. There's growth. This is how it works. Because the Scripture, the Word of God, trains you in righteousness. This is why it should be central in our service. This is why we should be longing for it. Because the Scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. They're sufficient to mature the believer. And finally, the Scriptures are sufficient to equip the servant. Verse 17, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now for Timothy, this was quite a calling, that Timothy would fill in for Paul, Paul who was called individually by Jesus Christ and appointed to do the work of preaching to the Gentiles. And now Paul is passing this over to Timothy this is quite a, a challenge for young Timothy. This is why in the very next verses he speaks so sternly to him in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's all the time. Be ready. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, young Timothy, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How? How is it that young Timothy could actually do that work? Because the Word of God not only saved him, but the Word of God has helped him to mature to the point where now he can, is equipped to do the work of ministry. He's equipped as a servant. He's equipped to minister to others. It's a difficult verse here, because most translations say adequate, which is not really an adequate word for the word adequate. Um, 
It's probably better translated as complete, proficient, or capable. The, the Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God can enable young Timothy to take over for the Apostle Paul because notice the word having been thoroughly equipped. It's a perfect participle. You say, of course it is. Which tells us that it's an action that's happened in the past, but it's carrying on in the present. Why? Because the Word of God has brought him to maturity, so he has been equipped, having been equipped. He is now equipped. He is now able to do the work of ministry that God has called him to do. What is the work of ministry that God has called you to do? Why are you here on this planet? If you are not, you're ready to do what he's called you to do. Long even more for the work of God, which is sufficient. Which is sufficient. You need Christ and you need his revealed word. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for the faith and we're so grateful for your truth that has been handed down to us. Your truth does not change. Your word is perfect. It is without error. It is inspired. It is complete. It is preserved. It is clear. And therefore, we know it is sufficient. It is sufficient to save the lost. It's sufficient to mature us believers. And it's sufficient to equip us as servants. Forgive us, Father, for times where we have allowed this world to influence us and pull us away from what we know will fulfill every spiritual need we have. Forgive us, Father, for times where we have downplayed your word, where it has not been central in our own worship. And help us to be more grateful and appreciative and desirous of your word being exalted in our lives as much as possible and in this church as much as possible. There is no satisfaction in this world without you. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us up in righteousness through your word. We are thankful for the high place your word has in this congregation and may that never diminish. But may we only grow and hunger to be in your word even more. We pray for your church, Lord. Use us to minister to those who are in need so that they too may glory in your goodness. It's in the glorious name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.